Welcome back to the Posh Cotton Podcast. You're listening to Liam Norvell and this is Hospitality News brought to you by the Industry Titans. And today's Titan is Mr. Embassy, the creator of the legendary Sugar Reef, owner of the Karma Sanctum London, all-round top bloke and a dear friend of mine, Mark Fuller. This is a fascinating episode. Mark actually has had coronavirus twice and has survived thyroid cancer over the last couple of years. So you're gonna hear his incredible journey in the hospitality industry and how he's lucky to be alive. Let's get straight onto the show. Before we do, we'll hear from our sponsors, Utilitrack. As one of the UK's leading commercial energy consultants, Utilitrack help businesses spend less on their utilities. There's never been a better time than now to review your costs. So if you'd like free help or advice on saving money on your utilities, email us at inquiries at utilitrack.co.uk or visit our website www.utilitrack.co.uk. Welcome back to the Posh Cotney podcast. You're listening to Liam Nobel and this is Hospitality News brought to you by the Industry Titans. And today's Titan is Mark Fuller. He is the owner of the Sanctum Hotel in London and is most well known for being the owner of Embassy Club in London as well. Mark, how are you? I'm all right, mate. How are you coping? Yeah, just about same as everyone, I think, as long as we're all alive. I suppose you can't complain too much, can you? You were just telling me uh, before we started recording that you, you think you've had coronavirus. Yeah, well, I, we, we did. I'm wearing this to say you've, uh, you've caught me uh, looking particularly attractive today in my cycling outfit because I'm trying to be good and bicycle. And as you can see, it says Vietnam, Truants. And we do this charity bicycle ride, about 40 of us, uh, for a charity called the Truants. Um, and I think this, this was the 10th year, and I think we've done it all, I can't remember, seven or eight uh, challenging rides, 200 kilometres over three days in very weird and wonderful places. And uh, just how it happened this year, it was in Vietnam. Uh, we kicked off in Hanoi, and the uh, the smog was so bad, you could barely go in front. And I, I've had um, thyroid cancer a few years ago, nothing to worry about, still here and alive, no drama. And it's given me a bit of walking pneumonia. So when I was in Hanoi doing this cycling thing, I got really, really bad chestnut. And so when I finished the ride, and I actually did do it, even though I'm a fat bugger, uh, my wife and I went down to see my friend John Spence's uh, hotel in Hoi An, further down, Karma, Karma, Vietnam. And I got so ill, I was laying on the floor. And this is in January, so this wasn't, there was nothing out about the COVID thing then. And we've since learned that, of course, um, the Chinese knew about it in November, but just didn't bother to mention it to anyone. And I was laying on the floor, I couldn't breathe, I couldn't, you know, I, and my wife said, right, you know, uh, I'm taking you to hospital and you try finding a cab in the middle of nowhere in Vietnam uh, yeah. to go to a hospital uh, when you can't speak the language. So, you know, she just stayed up with me all night. I lay on the floor, couldn't breathe. Thought, I really honestly thought, and I don't know whether it was the COVID or not, but it was sounds pretty similar, hot and everything else. And then when I came back, I got it again. But this time it was very, very mild. And I just went to sleep for five days. Temperature, sore throat, difficulty breathing. And after five days, felt pretty, pretty rough and everything else. But, you know, hey, that was a few months ago, still alive, again. But keep trying. Well, you're, you're actually the first person on the podcast that's had, well, thinks or knows that they've had the, the virus. So. Yeah, well, I've, I called through all my symptoms on the second time uh, to the doctors, and they said, yeah, you got it. Because I've got a very low immune system because of the whole, whole cancer treatments and everything else, I think because I got it uh, in Vietnam and it was dealt with so quickly that the second time was very, very mild. Or I just got a mild version one time. Who knows? Who knows? But I've had it once or twice. Doesn't really matter. I'm sure, it, you know, 
Well, it's good that you're here today and you're able to, to speak to me, that's yeah. for sure. Mark, can you tell me, can we go all the way back to the beginning of your hospitality career and, and tell me how it all started? Well, yeah, I am very, very back at the beginning. I was um, managing bands very, very badly, probably before you were born in the sort of late 80s, you know, um, all the sort of punk stuff and everything else. And given that my business partners now manage the great mighty Iron Maiden, I now know I was a really useless manager as far as bands were concerned. And I basically ran out of money and uh, so did the band. And we ended up doing these one-nighters in nightclubs. And I found this nightclub that was uh, going past called Fubert. And it's actually probably just about in the same position where Cirque du Soir is now in, um, in Soho. Uh, off Carnaby Street, and um, so we started doing these one-nighters, and this and, and this uh, nightclub was in, in such bad state. It had really probably I think the last person that came into it was in 1960, um, and it had you know um, camouflaged nets up on one single disco light and everything else. And they were literally as the people came in and they were taking money over the bar, running to the shop and buying more beer. And I saved their bacon, and um, I also saved my own bacon at the same time because we made a few bob. Uh, so then I realised that we'll be quite clever because it was the, the, the time of the one-nighters that I got together all the individual one-night clubs that were running. And, and in those days, it was the Bat Cave, the Mud Club, and all this sort of stuff. And, it, and actually, one night I did, it was a punk night with Jimmy Percy of Sham 69. And uh, we put all these nights into this club, and I got paid, and, and the clubs did very well and everything else, and I was doing really quite well. They, then they demolished it, the club. So I had to go, go and get proper. And, uh, and, and, and the club that I used to frequent quite a lot uh, because I was terrible drunkard in those days. Uh, it was the Embassy Club. And um, the Embassy Club had been closed. Some Arabs had bought it and then they buggered it up and everything else. So I went in and got the deal. And then we started the legendary Embassy Rock and Roll Club, God, around about 1990. Uh, when I, and, and, uh, and, then I, and after that, I had some kids. And then I, so I decided I really wouldn't. My, my, my then wife said, I'm not really going to have any children if you're up all night partying and come home and there I'm sat with a baby. So I thought I, I, I'd open a restaurant. So we have a board hall. That was great. Perfect timing on that one as well. The great recession, Maggie Thatcher's recession came in. I just signed the lease and on Percy Street, just down Tottenham Court Road, thinking, ah, oh, can't go wrong here because all these people buying cheap stereos and everything else down um, uh, Tottenham Court Road. And then there was no one. Uh, so <laughs> then I went down to Greek Street and reopened Boardwalk there with... Uh, the help of, uh, may she rest in peace, Debbie Raymond and my great friend, John James. And uh, we were there for 10 years, went off, uh, reopened uh, Little Havana down in Leicester Square, uh, which is now where Ruby Blue is. Uh, at that time, we, we got together with Marco Pierre White and we went off and I helped him with Titanic. And then, of course, we did the legendary Sugar Reef together and we turned Red Cube, uh, sorry, uh, Little Havana into a thing called Red Cube. And then we sold a lot of them. And then I ended up back at the Embassy Club in Old Burlington Street for 10 years. And in that period of, period of time, we did Jill's Fish Restaurant, which sadly really now is a thing of the past because restaurants, you know, little local family restaurants are just not going to happen now, um, despite it being there since 1939. I didn't own it then. And, and of course, the Sanctum. And then Sanctum on the Green. And we so, uh, so we now have the Karma Sanctum Soho Hotel. We have Karma Sanctum on the Green. In those places, in the Sanctum of the Green, we have the Mole and Badger uh, Wine Bar and Restaurant. Here we have Wild Heart Bar and Restaurant. And I'm looking really now at hotels that sort of kind of a bit like members clubs and bars all in one. You know, when, when Marco and I had Sugar Reef, we used to have a moniker that said affordable glamour and total entertainment. Well, 
wasn't quite true because you couldn't sleep there. So, you know, I've readopted that for Sanctum because it is total entertainment. You can come, you can get a drink, uh, you know, you can eat, you can sit on the rooftop bar, you can jump in the jacuzzi, uh, but it is total entertainment now because when you've done all of that, you can then fall asleep here too. Well, it's a phenomenal career. I mean, some of those clubs you just reeled off, they are some of the biggest in the last 20 years. I mean, Sugar Reef, uh, Embassies, yeah. actually, when I first met you, uh, I was working yeah, for London right. pa- working for London parties and I, I turned up yeah. at the door uh, taken over from Ross Slade. He was, I think he was uh, leaving London oh, parties yeah. at the time. Turned yeah. up there and I uh, said, I'm Liam from London parties. And you said, sorry, mate, we've got another company in. <laughs> My first oh, yeah. night at Embassy was, was, didn't even start. <laughs> <laughs> it was a bit cutthroat in those days you know i mean uh, i always remember there was a guy i can't remember his name now but we used to do the um friday nights there and uh, uh my i was away and, and my manager you know sent through the report for friday night and we'd, I think we'd normally take about 10 20 grand or something and it, and it showed uh 10 so i thought it was a bit quiet he went yeah but it's half term blah 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 and then the next week, um, the, the next week it was showing eight grand, and I, I, I found out he went, "Oh, yeah, well, it's still half term, Mark." And then the third week it was showing six grand, so I called him up, and um, I, he said, "Oh, so I said, don't give me that half term nonsense." <laughs> I said, "Who's the promoter?" And I can't remember; it'll come to me um, in a minute. And I phoned him up, and, and he heard that phone that went, brruh, 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 brruh. so it was obviously abroad. And he answered me, he said, "Hey, Mark, just a minute. Let me just get the kids out the pool." And I said, all right, where are you? He said, oh, I'm in Barbados for a month. And I said, listen, I'm in the wrong business here. I said, my promoter who's doing my Friday nights that's now losing money is sitting on a beach in Barbados and I'm scratching my ass trying to find the money to pay the bills. Uh, <laughs> but that, that was the start of the big London downturn. Because I said to him, I said, uh, why are we not making so much money? And he said, well, you won't pay for girls to get in. And I said, so when I started the business, when I told you I did the legendary Embassy Club, the original one, you know, you lived off the door. You know, yeah. you, you as the club owner, you lived off the door and you got the money in. And that was kind of your bunts. You know, you, you got your cash at the door and that was that. There was, you know, back in those days, they didn't pay much attention to VAT. And uh, and, and now, now I'm looking at a negative on the door because I've got to play on promoters. And, and, I, and I always remember my, one of my last moments in, in, in clubs when, because of course, if I was quiet, so for example, that night there was, you know, six grand I need to get it more. And I had to go and find one of you and nick them from another club. Yeah. So in order to get the business in, I would have to make you a better offer than the other club. I think by the time I gave up, we were paying £20 that was for, for girls to come in for free to attract men to come in and buy bottles, which in my mind could potentially be called prostitution. It's certainly soliciting. And, uh, but that's what everybody was doing, and it was going up and up and up and up. My goddaughter, bless her, Fawn, she's now called Fawn Lawson. Uh, she was then Fawn James, who was Paul Raymond's granddaughter, who, of course, is not an unreasonably wealthy young lady. Uh, she was getting, she was, her and her mates were going to nightclubs and getting free bottles of vodka uh, because they were pretty girls. Yeah. You know, it's just crazy, crazy. And, and I, I, I've been out of the scene for a very, very long time, but I, 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 I think it's still going. You know, I mean, you still pay a lot of money to get a lot of people and hope they'll spend it on it very massively overpriced bottles of vodka but for me and clubland and i don't know about you and obviously now it's a different time but you know in the end you got to the point where when there was the gray economy back in the day where you could get a credit card you could you could lease a portion but if you hadn't got any money at all and you and i used to watch these people roll up at the door with yeah. their cards and their and their cash and everything else and 
and their fancy cars. Of course, when the, 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 the next recession came in and you couldn't get, and you couldn't lease these cars and you couldn't get credit cards, of course, that clubs started going down and you actually had to work for a living to spend the money. Uh, that went. And I just think, uh, and, and, and now if we're looking at the COVID thing, I mean, I, I, I shudder to think how restaurants are going to work, um, how uh, bars are going to work. I mean, I was saying to my son the other day, uh, you know, uh, I said, it'd be great. Thank God you're not single because, um, you know, you, you go on a date now and you turn up at a bar and there's 30 people standing around in masks. You know, it's not, not going to be a good look, you know, yeah. back, you know. And I don't think Tinder's very popular at the moment either, is it? <laughs> <laughs> How has it affected your business? Well, um, you know, we, we, as I say, we've got three businesses in the UK. We have a restaurant in Dubai and we have a hotel building in Bali. That's obviously stopped. Um, there was uh, there was another couple of deals that I was looking at about building some hotels in America. That's obviously not gone forward. The hotel was the last thing to close because, you know, first off, we shut the restaurant and bar in the hotel and we stayed open. Both hotels have remained open for essential workers. Having said that, you know, I'm in the West End now. I'm talking to from my 30-bedroom hotel in Warwick Street and there's not a soul in here and there's not a soul booked either for two or three days because... As I've been talking to you and Gavin on, not one single car has gone past this hotel in the Warwick Street. And it's a bit like um, watching one of those um, uh, uh, cowboy movies at the moment, the West End, you know, with the tumbleweed going down the middle. You can see people are, mo are, are moving out of retail, uh, clearly, and they're big name people, but they're moving out to such a degree, it's not like they're emptying the shops because they're worried about being burgled. They're emptying, emptying the shops because you look in the window and you just see the phone in the middle of the floor and they've ripped everything out. And, and I think if you look at it, you know, I mean, obviously I've been talking to all these people, London Time Out, I think Jonathan Downey's done an amazing job there. Um, talking to my own landlord, John James, who's been quite extraordinarily good. He's putting together a, um, a proposal for Westminster to uh, pedestrianise Soho um, so that everyone can put their restaurants, tables and chairs and bars on the street to do the social distancing to try and save the business. But... You know, as I say, the, the hospitality industry was already in trouble. Not the hotel industry, but the hospitality industry. You know, we, we'd already got down to my old business nightclubs, down to there being a few nightclubs, and a lot of them only open three, four nights a week, some of them two nights a week. When I was there, you'd buy clubs, you'd sell clubs, you know, you'd make big money, and it wasn't really happening anymore. Um, so God knows what will happen there. How can you social distance in a club when all clubs whether it's, uh, you know, members, I mean, members clubs maybe, but but certainly the, you know, the, the clubs that, that we used to run with, you know, the cool music and the great crowd and the good looking people, it's just not going to happen. And of course, if they base themselves on, you know, the, the table spends and everything else, if you haven't got gorgeous girls wandering around without masks, then why are you going to spend the money to have a table to look big? And I think a lot of people, uh, from what I'm picking up, are scared. And I think, uh, yes, of course, I think there's going to be a big, you know, when, when the lockdown finishes, everyone's going to try, try and go for it. But I think we're going to be regulated because of this second spike, which is going to be difficult. But I also think that the world, we're going to change in what we're doing now. Um, you know, we've all got used to cooking at home, mm -hmm. right? We've all got used to this change in price of cooking at home rather than spending it in restaurants. We've all got used to the price of a bottle of vodka and a bottle of wine at home. And, you know, back, as I say, I'm that old when I first started, you couldn't buy fancy booze in supermarkets, but now in every supermarket, there's every bit of fancy booze the same as you can more or less get in a, in a nightclub or, 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 or in a restaurant or something. There's great food there. I think uh, for the businesses as it stands, nightclubs are really going to struggle. 
and I can't see them coming back until the social distancing is dropped because yeah. there's no atmosphere. I think the same applies to restaurants because, you know, I was watching Marcus Waring and he said, well, look, you know, he gets, he's got 25 people in the kitchen and how's he going to, you know, how's he going to serve this amazing mission star food and social distancing in the kitchen? Answer not. And are you going to pay that sort of money? And I'm sure you and I have seen that the um, supermarkets put the prices up. Well, you can guarantee that our restaurant prices and everything will go up because everything's going to go up. And um, I'm probably one of the lucky ones. Jill's restaurant in Notting Hill, I mean, it was dying a death. That, that, that mid-range um, casual dining was gone anyway. You know, we've seen a lot of places go, like your Byron's go and then be rebought. Collegios, uh, Chiquitos went pretty quickly just after the, the COVID came out. Um, so I, I don't hold out a huge amount of hope for that. But, you know, because, again, also it's fish and chips and we've all started eating healthy. So I, I think that's going to really struggle because it was struggling beforehand. The London Hotel, actually, strangely, I'm probably better than most here. I'm 30 bedrooms. I've got an open-air rooftop bar. 30 bedrooms equals 60 people, per se, let's pretend. Um, my bar easily seats probably 40 people on the roof and socially distanced without the big... And the whole point about it is it was, it was, it's a sleepy bar. There'll be no big crazy parties up there. Yeah. Uh, my restaurant that we're sitting in now seats 80. We've worked out because it was quite spaced out anyway. We can seat 35 socially distanced for a bar and restaurant. And also because it's a hotel bar and restaurant, you're not expecting that whole hustle bustle. So I think, we, I think we'll be all right. I think also from my point of view, uh, unlike restaurants and bars, small hotels, one, people would probably prefer to come to small hotels because there's less, uh, there's less risk. The social distancing by default, because you've only got 30 rooms, is better than going to a 400-bedroom room and, of course, getting around in the common parks and everything. I think also probably if you're coming to a hotel and because of the restrictions on flying, when, when everything does open up, the shops open up, it's a good opportunity to come and get some sales and everything. Listen, I'm being really hopeful here. Yeah. I mean, it might, might not happen. Um, and then, of course, when you come here, you know, we'll be, we'll be certainly opening and doing food and everything. And so are you going to go out and try and find somewhere to eat, queue or anything else? Or if you're here for a bit of a time, eat something here. I think that's probably, probably the way it's going to go. So I think we're just down to, for me, I think central London is down to, is there going to be any business? The biggest concern, I think, not just for hotels, but for the whole of Soho and everything else is, who's coming, mm. right? And when they do come, if half the people have lost their jobs or on 80% and everything, I think the other thing is, is look, we've now become a bit more uh, financially responsible. We're now a bit, all of us are thinking, oh, I don't really want to blow out on a credit card because I might not have a job next week. So I think it's going, I mean, everyone's going to want to have a party, but you know, this my boy is 29 years old now and he's, um, you know, he's the new generation and the new generation are not interested in nightclubs and everything. They're more interested in having parties in their garden, you know? So I think it's going to be a whole new world. I think the whole thing's going to change. I'm, I'm very concerned that, as I say, if people are moving out of their offices, what's going to be happening during the day in a market that was already had way more seats than bums for restaurants and bars? You know, can we survive as a restaurant and bar just on a Thursday, Friday, Saturday? Half business answer is absolutely not. That's why I applaud John and Soho Estates and everything who have you know, suspended uh, the rent for three months. They're probably going to do, I mean, they're, they're then saying, pay us when you open monthly because obviously if there's some income. But I think, you know, it's going to be a long, long time. And I think a lot of restaurants are not going to, you, you're never going to see again. I think a few bars, as I say, for me, managing 
you know, now they've extended the furlough situation, I think managing the hotels is easier because I know how many rooms are coming. And yeah. if nobody's coming, I'm not going to employ anybody back. And if it picks up, I'll gradually pick people up or furlough. I can't see it going past October. And I think, as I say, it's gonna be, there's a lot of pressure on pub gardens and everything else to open now. They're probably not going to do it until, Jan, you know, until July. But I think certainly the advantage on a hotel basis and also our advantage on the one in the, in the country, which has got, I found out, I closed the pool and I found out the only thing that actually the government say you can use is a swimming pool because wow. it's got chemicals in it. So when you book down to the Karma Sanctum on the green, there's a nice little pool. Again, it's nine bedrooms so social, and huge gardens. So socially distancing. But the only, wow. only thing is you've got to book your slot for the pool. And we were having this big argument yesterday as to how long is your spot. And so we think, we think we're going to have to give, we can have multiple spots, but you know, only one group of you know, one room, I, husband and wife or whatever, can go in the pool at one time. But we're going to have to get used to that. And in my long bicycle ride coming in today, I, I bicycled down the King's Road. And there must have been for, for Waitrose and Sainsbury's in, in Fulham. There must have been a queue of two, three hundred people just all down the street. It was extraordinary, all socially distanced. And that's what we're going to get, have to get used to. You'd be exhausted. Who wants to go out at night? I think there'll be a big breakout, people partying and everything else. But my word, the, the world has changed. It will change, you know. I've got a feeling that once this is all over, your, your love for nightclubs might come back and you might pick, try and pick up a little deal. <laughs> oh, too old for that. Too old for that. And my wife, my, 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 my beautiful wife of two years will have none of that. You know, Shireen used to be a waitress at uh, Penthouse back in the day, finished up at, um, at Quaglino's before I employed her and married her. But I think there'll be no more going out till three o'clock in the morning because the, the great, the terrible thing about having hotels is it doesn't matter because you've got to be ready for breakfast at eight. How do you motivate yourself after so many years? Well, it's well, it's funny you should say that. You know, I, I have had a rough last five or six years. You know, I, I, I love the nightclubs. It's very important that you recognise that, look, you know, when I, when I gave up the nightclubs, I just turned 50. It is a young man's game. You know, you, you, there's no doubt that you separate yourself from what people are doing. And also your friends, your real friends, or not necessarily your real friends, even your nightclub friends are also generally around your same age. And, you know, the last few years of the embassy, I just kept going and thinking, thank God I've got a restaurant on the ground floor, otherwise I'd just be a paedophile, you know. And it is a young person's game. And the point is, is that if young people want fun, like-minded people have got to, you know, got to go with it. So, therefore, it, it's, you know, it's important. There's some great clubs out there. You know, I mean, when Ryan, who has got Cirque du Soir, started, he was a promoter for me, you know. And he's now, you know, the big cheese. And he's got a few clubs and everything else. And my heart goes out to him because I think he's going to find it rough. But it was fun. And, and I think in the nightclub world, you know, when we had the nightclubs, until it got very difficult and you lived in this bubble and, you know, you were there for five nights a week and waking up at two o'clock in the afternoon and you just sort of revolved, did this revolving clock of publicity, PR functions. And I lived it for so long. I mean, I suppose, what did I do? I started it when I was about 22 or 23 or something like that. So I lived a long time in nightclubs. So I had way more than my 15 minutes of fame and way longer than the majority of, I mean, most people don't last in nightclubs more than two or three years. Yeah. So I suppose there was, there's, half a, there's half a dozen of us that, that, that lasted. But it, but it is important that you recognise what's going on. My, and I always combined my nightclubs with food, which meant it was easy enough to sort of roll that way. I kind of got involved in hotels because my business partner, Andy Taylor, he had this place down in the country 
that you know the natural development of um, you know nightclubs and everything else was staying somewhere. And, and of course, when Sanctum in Warwick Street came up, we thought about turning it into a hotel. I had no knowledge of it, and and that was fun. And we did the TV shows for it and all the bits and pieces. And you know, I was doing all the all the various you know interviews and all that sort of stuff. And then you come in, and actually, you're right. Then you get left with, you know, it's all happening, it's all right, and then somebody else comes along and you've got this permanent battle. And I did enjoy hotels and everything else, but here's an interesting point. Just because you know a bar does not mean you can run a nightclub. Just because you run a nightclub does not mean you know a restaurant. Just because you have a restaurant does not mean you can run a live music venue. I did the Marquee Club with Dave Stewart from the Eurythmics, and we, and we went bust, right? you know, it cost me a fortune. And, and, and just because you know how to run any of the, the, the above, me doesn't mean you know how to run a hotel now i came in running hotels at a nine bedroom hotel out in the country there was a long time when i thought i knew what i was doing until you get past the early part and then you realize you're really not making as much money or in fact you're losing money or whatever and hotels work completely different from bars and restaurants hotels generally pre-covid god knows after covid take about seven years to develop and make money whereas of course nightclubs and restaurants are pretty instant so if you're work in a hotel to make money after seven years if after seven years you suddenly start not making money then you're in, you're in big trouble but i got thyroid cancer um i didn't know i had it um i went off um with rod smallwood and iron maiden on their boeing 747 on their on their world tour of the book of souls and i was in there in the posh up, up front seats with the boys and the boys were saying god you're noisy snoring and I mean, whilst, you know, I've had a terrible misspent youth, um, snoring isn't, it wasn't, well, you know, it wasn't an unusual thing, which was really quite bad. And then I flew between Tulsa uh, on the 747 to uh, LA, uh, and then, sorry, uh, to Vegas. And I, I jumped off there and um, I realized that there was, a, you know, I was, there was something wrong. And I was sleeping and I was waking up in the middle of the night gasping for breath. Um, and I just thought, oh, this is part of getting old. This is part of a misspent youth. This is part of everything. The snoring got worse and worse and worse. And I, and I hooked up with a girlfriend of mine in um, in L.A., young, free and single in those days, divorced, you know, happily divorced, living the life. Uh, we had a very nice first night. And then the second and third night were horrific because my snoring got so bad. I was accused of doing terrible, illegal things, smoking, this, that and the other. And I honestly hadn't done anything. Uh, you know, so I thought I'd better go and get it checked out because it was pretty terminal with this girlfriend. But when your girlfriend books you into a hotel and books you into a separate room on a different floor because they can't bear you snoring, you really are in trouble. So I thought, you know what, either she's really trying to get rid of me or I really am bad. And either way, I've got to sort something out. And I remember going to the hospital and, and, and they had a look and, and I've got this very weird thing. When I get tattoos or I have um, dental surgery or I go to hospitals, I automatically fall asleep. So they were doing me the, the scan you know, the, I can't remember what it, the, the, the electronic one where they put the jelly on you and everything. And, and, and I fell asleep and I woke up and there was nobody in the room. And I called out and they came out and they were all a bit sort of edgy around me. And they just sort of said, uh, they just said, oh, um, we need to do a biopsy because there's a lump in your, in, you know, in your neck. And I thought, oh, and yeah, yeah, fine, no problem. And I went, hang on, lump. And my ex-wife had breast cancer. Um, so I was sitting there thinking, and, and I was sitting there thinking, um, uh, oh, you know, that, that can't, you know, I mean, there's no chance my poor kids can have both their parents with cancer. So I, yeah, yeah, fine. I said, well, what's the problem? They said, oh, it's probably nothing. It's probably nothing. Anyway, they took the biopsy. I didn't hear anything for a couple of days. I thought everything was all right. Um, and then the doctor called me and said, um, what are you doing on Monday? I went, oh, I don't know, I'm going to work. He said, well, you're going to hospital now. 
I said, oh, yeah, but I've got a meeting at four. And he said, no, 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 you're going to hospital because uh, you, if you don't go to hospital, they, they said, you've got a lump in your throat the size of a cricket ball, which the reason why you can't breathe is, is because it's pressing against your wind stuff. Uh, it is cancer. We've got to take your thyroid out. You know, normally thyroid cancer is it's like winning the cancer lottery. It doesn't spread. It's not too bad. But this had got so big because I hadn't seen it for so much because I've got such a thick neck that, you know, I could have fallen asleep the wrong way and just gone. Wow. Um, and so we went in, they did. They took half the thyroid cancer out. And this was uh, and, uh, half, the, half the thyroid out. And then they found another bit, took another one out. So I had two big operations. I got rid of my flat. I was going to move in with this girlfriend. That was clearly not going to happen anymore. Um, yeah. And so I went down to set up a shop with my old mum down, um, down in the country. Uh, for a bit so that there was somebody there to look after me and I remember getting in my car and driving along and god knows how I didn't cause about 97 accidents because you know I was completely out of it I had no sense of temperature at all I, I went down I was in Marlow way and I remember the day before Christmas I was walking down Marlow High Street and everyone's looking at me because I was wearing a t-shirt and a pair of shorts because I and it was minus two because I have no, had no feeling of anything that's part and parcel of what happened anyway I did that I got and then they, then it still didn't go away. Uh, so they had to do the nuclear science and they gave, gave me what they called was the nuclear bomb. So I had to go into quarantine and I was in, I was in my own lockdown. So I'm not unused to this one now. Um, I had a month uh, where I had to, the only place I could stay was in my own hotel. Uh, nobody could come into my room because I was radioactive. Uh, mm. I had to get KFC deliveries, couldn't use knives and forks and everything else. Sat in this room for a month. And then after, it made me laugh, after, after a month, they let me out and they said, look, you can come out. Um, I was allowed to go out for runs in the night as long as I wasn't near any, because I was properly radioactive. And my, as I said, my son came to see me and he was violently ill for two days after seeing me because I'm, I'm radioactive. So I've run around Soho, uh, you know, and if you'd see, it's like if I'd have bumped into you, you'd have gone, hey, Mark, how are you? And put, hold your hand out and I couldn't stay or talk to you. But it did make me laugh um, when they let me out. I said, right, you can come out, can't travel. They said, but you can't be near young children or pregnant women. I said, well, I should never have been allowed that anyway. <laughs> um, but I suppose, therefore, you, the, the, that's a really long answer to your question. You know, I, it was a good two or three years. You know, I went through a divorce, did that thing that all us, you know, you know me well. I, I had all the mid-range crises anyway. I had the Aston Martin, the Harley, because I'm a motorcycle rider. So I'd already had a long, very, very long midlife crisis. But, of course, I went on full tilt, you know, after getting divorced. And, uh, you know, I um, and then I had the cancer. Uh, and then, of course, that changed everything because, you know, alcohol didn't agree with my pills. You know, I still try and have a bevy every now and again. But it's I either have a very small bit of lager and fall over um, or I can drink 97 bottles of vodka and not notice it, which is actually very, very dangerous. It took a few years for that. I was I was locked up for quite some time. Uh, not locked up, I'm sorry, I'm quarantined quite some time, you know, in our business locked up. And, and then, of course, I met my wife, Shireen, um, who uh, it was the very first time I was allowed out to a party and I bumped into her and I think I said some crass chat-up line uh, and, and she was, you know, amazing. And, 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 and then you revive everything. You, you've got to, you know, it's a bit like what we've got to do now. You come through all this stuff, you come through cancer, you come through a divorce, you come through all the bits and pieces and you've got to reinvent your life. Strangely, you're right if you've done it all and then you've settled and everything else, you, you, you might lose it a little bit. And Shireen gave me a massive kick up the arse. And she said, listen, you're lazy. She said, just be, you know, she said, you've got to do this again now. You've got a new wife. Um, you know, I want to do it. I want to have my life. And I want to do this whole thing with you. And I, and I thought, you know what? The loveliest thing that I did in my life was everything 
achieving everything, you know, from everything. From, I love getting deals. I love doing deals from booze suppliers to everything else. It's just in my nature. You know, I mean, you made a, a joke earlier on about nicking a deal on a nightclub. I might not do that, but, I, you know, I'm going to nick a, you know, if I can see some other deals coming up as we move on, you know, it's, it's, it's the way forward. So I've got my life back. I, I have a great debtor, thanks to whoever has, keeps an eye on me. Um, for surviving something that I probably should have gone on, um, you know, and I should be just grateful for that. Uh, you know, it took a really long time for me to then look at my whole life, how it was, turn it around, look at what I want to do. And then you have this moment where you suddenly, you know, everything's become real. There's no more alcohol, there's no more parties, there's no more nightclubs, and you're just looking at something. And as you know, we, we've been through, you know, it might not have been a recession, but it's not been easy, this trade, for a long, long time, and it was getting yeah. worse and worse and worse. And, and you end up sort of going, you're ploughing your furrow and going into it, and it, all it is is it's a survival. I mean, I was, it was, I, was, I can't remember, oh, Jamie Oliver said, you know, when he went bust, he said, listen, before I went bust, it wasn't a matter of profit, it was a matter of survival. And he said, now I've got five restaurants left, and he said, even there, it's a matter of survival. You know, you're not talking about profit. And all of us were. And, you know, when this COVID thing came in, the reality is, is that the, the, the restaurant and bar trade, it used, used to work on a third, third and third. A third was your cost. A third was your cost of your rental and your electricity and everything else. A third was your cost of your product and your staff. And a third was profit. It's three to nine percent that we make. Right. You know what I mean? And so if you get in difficult, I mean, the greatest thing about life when, when, when I was younger and all this is that you could get into trouble and you could have, there was so much money around that you could take a nightclub that's losing hundreds of thousands of pounds and in, in a matter of weeks, turn around your cash flow and make the money. Yeah. You know, but it's not going to be like that anymore. But for me, the COVID thing and everything else is, comes at a very interesting time where, you know, I've got a new life. I've got a new wife. I've got something that, you know, um, you know, I have a great relationship with my kids. You know, Eloise is 24. She's uh, in films, you know, PR and marketing. Um, and my boy's um, in building and um, what he was last week, but he's a bit entrepreneurial like me, bless him. <laughs> uh, Max, he's, um, he's doing great, uh, you know. And, um, and my, my wife, Shireen, and, you know, suddenly we looked at it. And, and the COVID thing and everything else, it kind of wipes the slate clean because none of us know what's going to happen now. It's like me opening my first business because we've got this place, we've got these rooms, we've got everything. We just don't know what's going to happen. I'm actually quite excited because it's like going, being back again at square one. You know, I bicycled in today to help my maintenance man put up curtains. Right? Kind of enjoy that. Yeah, right? yeah. It's all very well having a lovely time sitting around, you know, by pools and this, that and the other and, and, and all that. But if you're kidding yourself, you know, Paul Raymond, you know, didn't get really rich till he was 75. Well, I haven't even hit 60 yet, you see, so I've got a long way to go. So, you know, they always say behind every successful man is a good woman. And, and I have a woman that has a drive and she has a different attitude. And she's been in this industry for such a long time at, at a, such a high level. She knows what she's doing. So I'm getting poked really heavily with a big stick. <laughs> and I'm really, really loving it. And, and you know, I, I will come back. I think that we've got all, us as all bosses, you know, I mean, I had 13 businesses at one point. I've now got three. I don't, I'm not sure whether I can save Jill's or not, but I'm going to have a good crack at it. So, and I think, uh, you know, Sanctum, I think, has got every, every chance, both the hotels, because they're perfectly placed as this sort of members club, come hotel, come, you know, boutique hotel that people are like. I think if there's any chance we've got it, right? I don't think it'll always be like this. I think we're going to, everything's going to struggle until the beginning of the year. 
but I find it exciting. You know, as, as you say, I'm, I'm blessed that, you know, I had some iconic places and probably made a bit of nightclub history along the way. But you know what? If I can come through this one, my biggest victory and my biggest challenge and my biggest victory, if I can turn this round and, and snatch victory for success, uh, sorry, victory from defeat, um, I'm going to be, you know, be my proudest moment and my best moment. You sound like a newborn man. You sound like, uh, Something like the, that. Yeah. the world's ahead of you. and. and hope the body can keep up with it that's why i'm on the bicycle <laughs> you see you know so you said if you come through this that would be your proudest moment what actually is your proudest moment in business so far well i think when we you know sugar reef was the greatest moment uh, there were the two great moments one was sugar reef um and then the other one was the opening of the sanctum because it was a you know it was something that i wanted to do hotels and you know it's a great moment you know, as I say, the problem is, is I mean, it, I reckon it took me 10 years to learn how to be a hotelier. So hopefully I am one now. But, um, but you know, it does take a long time. It's like learning a brand new business. Um, just, as I say, just because you can run a restaurant does not mean you can run a hotel. And it doesn't mean you can run a restaurant in a hotel. Everything changes. And so my proudest moment was getting this one out because it was, for me, the Sanctum Hotel is something that it won't go anywhere. If you, if, if you can understand, if you buy a nightclub, and you're very successful then, that's a moment in time. The reality is at some point it may well become a car park. Hotels generally, maybe the name will change, but this will be something that I built in central London, which is fantastic, right? Okay, something my kids, kids, kids can go, oh, my great granddad did that one, this, that and the other. Or maybe they'll bad mouth me. Um, You know, that's where he lost all the money. Uh, (laughs) But um, this is my greatest achievement. But you know what? There is one other achievement that beats everything. And it's not in business. The greatest achievement is two kids, yeah. right? Okay. The greatest achievement is I have Eloise who's 24, Max who's 29. And, you know, as I say, on paper, I'm not a great father, right? Because I was never at home. But I have an amazing relationship with my two kids. Um, and they have gone on and I've survived. They've survived despite their father, you know? So that, that's my greatest achievement. You know, for me here... If I can save a load of jobs, I can turn what appears to be a total disaster in our industry with everyone saying, how can it be done and come up with a way of doing it and lead these guys through it. I think that'll be pretty special. You know, John James, who's been my mate who runs Soho States, has been my friend for, God, 40 years. He's Um, he's actually on the show in a couple of weeks. Is he really? Yeah. The greatest thing about John, I'm just going to wax lyrically about my friend for a minute. He's the only landlord in my view, possibly in the world, but certainly in London, if not the UK, that gets it because he was a manager at the Embassy Club, not my Embassy Club, ran all sorts of bits and pieces of everything else before he went into being the, the, the landlord side. So he gets it. Yeah. You know, he was the brains behind uh, the, the, the financial put together of Soho House and Nick Jones must be forever grateful that they came up with this idea he was the brains behind here you know he's done an application to the city of westminster as i say to pedestrianize soho and put all the tables and chairs on the street which i think is extraordinarily clever because it's a template for every you know for the summer it's like a three-month summer festival soho festival and i think it's the only chance of everyone having some business because you can social distance it's the only chance of being able to do it it's also an amazing thing i want to go and have a look at it Sure. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a regeneration of someone who's dead. Because as I say, at the moment, there's tumbleweed going down the streets, right? Okay. And uh, it, it, as I say, when, when, you, um, when he goes on the show, you've got to tell him, I mean, I, I, yeah, I have amazing admiration for that man. Because as I say, to come up with this idea, 
to do it because we're all in it together. It's not yeah. business in the community. We are the community. Absolutely, we're all going to go bust unless we get help. There's no doubt about it whatsoever. All of us, every single bar, every single restaurant, every single hotel is going to be bust, right? Okay, unless we get some help. The only people that need premises now are people in hospitality because you can't order a, a gin and tonic on Amazon. You yeah. know, you can't, uh, you know, and you want the atmosphere and everything. And so therefore, Jonathan Downey and his crew are right that you'll ruin the trade if you open it too early and nobody can go there because everyone won't go there. We are going to see a reduction in the amount of people wanting to come out because they haven't got any money because there's a new normal, right, okay, and until it's fun. It, I think there'll be a big blowout and then it'll simper down. And unless we have people like John James and it's forward thinking um, and he gets it across to other landlords, this is what's going to happen. Soho will be empty. Everywhere will be empty. Everyone will go bust. And in the normal rules, the landlord would then come in, and John will not do this, I know that, um, the, the landlord will come in and repossess the place and give it to somebody else who probably in this day and age of what we're doing, do exactly the same thing go bust. We need to get more landlords like John together and support him as much as we can, get the government to look at this situation, because if the government will alleviate the, the, the problems with landlords that have who are uh, geared with borrowings and everything, then they can help us, yeah. right? If they don't get help, there is a point where they can't help us. Mark, it's been fascinating speaking to you. It's <laughs> um, Sanctum Hotel is one of my favourite hotels in London. I love coming Thank to chill you. out there. Uh, I love catching up with you. Listen, when... let's hope that, you know, in July, my little rooftop bar, we'll be able to see, us, see each other again, sitting on the rooftop bar, yeah. uh, you know, and, you know, enjoy a nice cocktail at a socially distanced time and pull this whole business through. It, it, it's great what you do. It's great what you're doing with the podcast and everything else because it's keeping people in contact. Every which way we need to help this industry, we need to help it. It's gonna be some fallout, there's gonna be some changes, but it's all gonna change. John recognizes that, you recognize that, a lot of people recognize that, but we should, you know, as the people that you know, have been around for a little while, we pull together and get as many people together but it, it needs to be realistically business-led support, which is why yeah. you know we need to get behind Soho Estates and all the people. Thank you so much, Mark. That was truly inspiring. And we're all blessed to have you still in our lives. So thanks for coming on. And I wish you all the best. And I know Karma Sanctum will come through this bigger and stronger. On to Friday's episode. Now we have Roger Payne, who is the CEO of Enhanced Hospitality. He's best well known for Gilgamesh, Shakazulu, Fest and Sound in Leicester Square many, many moons ago. Roger is a fascinating character and I can't wait to speak to him and bring you that episode. So make sure you tune in this Friday. Once again, you can reach me on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter or Instagram at Liam Norval or drop me an email, liam.norval at poshcockney.co.uk. If you want to be on the show, drop me an email. And again, I am available for public speaking. So please drop me an email for requests. Guys, have a great couple of days and I'll catch you on Friday.